Coming up this week on Sporting Journal Radio. A walleye is a walleye is a walleye. Whether it's on Lake Erie or it's on, in a farm pond in Iowa or it's in a Canadian Shield Lake or it's in Lake Columbia, they all do the same thing. It's simple, it's effective. In the case of Red Lake, Upper Red Lake, um, with uh, all those spawners, there's gonna be competition for even spawning habitat. Mm. Broadcasting from the Prairie Sportsman Studios. Presented by OnX. Know where you stand with OnX. <clears throat> We're not just a radio show anymore. Heck yeah. This is Sporting Journal Radio. Welcome to the show. Ali Shakur is with us. He's got some really cool walleye research to tell us about. If you like to walleye fish, you got to listen to this interview. We'll get as much of it in on the radio show as we can. We'll probably have to go along with the podcast. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll get the whole thing or downloading this, of course. Joe Henry is with us as well, too. We'll talk about the Rainy River and what Lake of the Woods might look like uh, for the opener coming up in just a little bit. I'm Brett Amundsen. That's Dan Amundsen and David Eckhart. How you fellas doing? Doing good. How you fellas doing? Who are the sponsors this week, Dan? This week we have OnX Hunt, OnX Maps, Know Where You Stand with OnX, Live Target, Match the Hatch at LiveTargetLures.com, Lake of the Woods Tourism, Lake of the Woods is the walleye capital, plan a trip for this summer at LakeofTheWoodsMN.com, Haybell Heights Campground and Resort, book a trip to Devil's Lake, North Dakota, learn more at HaybellHeights.com, Alclair Audio, save your ring in the field with Alclair, learn more at AlclairOutdoors.com, Ottertail Lakes Country, ice-free Ottertail Lakes Country. Find your inner otter at ottertaillakescountry.com. And Prairie Sportsman, the new season wraps up this week, but you can find all of our episodes on YouTube at the Prairie Sportsman YouTube channel. That's right. So we did film a turkey hunt this week that uh, we're hoping will be on Prairie Sportsman next year. We'll see. Uh, we still got to get Dan to fill his tag and hopefully get some good footage on that. <laughs> but I filled mine, and I think we were filming it fairly well i think we had pretty good footage dan until the turkey we were going after so we spotted one from the road david a long ways off we knew it we had a long ways to walk we were gonna try to get close enough to him without getting busted set up a decoy try to call him in film it we had good cover to walk along this creek and right before we got to the open field where we were going to kind of set up all of a sudden we heard gobbles right next to us and as we were kind of cutting up towards this field edge to like a T at the field edge, all of a sudden there was a turkey like coming down the field edge, I think. We heard it gobbling, gobbling, gobbling. We, all of a sudden it was past us and we could see it. So we quickly set up the decoy kind of in the woods, tried to call it in, wouldn't come, wouldn't come. And we, this has been the, one of the biggest struggles of early turkey season this year, David. It's not even early. Well, yeah, well, you're right. I should say the early part of the turkey seasons. I guess, and this is what season. This is during season. Yeah, it's C. not even early, but we're still dealing with it. It's just a late spring. Anyways, late go spring. on. A Issues. giant snowdrift is what we had. A, <laughs> we had to try to call him over this snowdrift to get to us because there was no way we could get to the other side of the drift without him spotting us. Wouldn't come. Wouldn't come. Just hung up. Bring your shovel. You couldn't tunnel through. <laughs> Finally crawled up on the drift and stuck the decoy on the drift. Perfect. Hoping he would see that, you know, see that decoy and come barreling in. Didn't move. Didn't do anything. <laughs> so I went up there, pulled the decoy. Bat. We backed off and called from him further away, trying to bring him, you know, get him to chase us. Mind a bit. you, with the worst mouth call I've ever used in my life. 
So let's <laughs> add that one. Yeah, it was uh, it was a bit of a struggle. So finally, I mean, we sat there and watched him for like a half hour spinning in circles. And I said, I think the only way we're going to get this done is if I grab the decoy and put a sneak on him, you know, try to crawl up uh, behind the decoy. And that, it, it was about five minutes after that decision that I realized just how out of shape I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big fan of belly crawling. No, I hate it for whatever. I don't like it. I like the easy way of just calling them in close. And Yeah, uh, the easy way. The e- That's so easy. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to belly crawl across the snowdrift, like t- t- through two snowdrifts to get to them. So I'm crawling through snow, and then there's wet grass and mud and tree branches, and I'm crawling, pulling a full-size, full, uh, it's like a strutting Jake decoy, and trying to trying to stay behind this thing and i know there's footage of it and some audio and the audio is just me going <gasps> it's straight out of straight out of star wars Darth Vader. <laughs> but i'll tell you what I got, I got close enough got the shot got it done and and was able to punch my tag so i'm pretty excited congratulations day two, day two of my turkey season that's the fastest i've filled filled the tag uh that's sad from the yeah season I, so uh anyway we've been eating some delicious turkey i uh, got a tip from Corey loffler fried in bacon grease it's amazing delicious i love it we've got a, a one of the legs and uh thigh meat is in uh, the crock pot right now doing some slow cooking so we're gonna eat that tonight pretty excited so uh we did a little bit of research and actually i found a, a pretty cool video that we're going to show you real quick here and then we're going to do some turkey trivia but uh minnesota's turkeys the last one they saw in the wild was 1880 it was the last one that they saw in the state. And then in the 1920s, they tried to reintroduce them. Uh, didn't work. Didn't work. And finally, in 1971, they were, they were other states were starting to transplant birds and bring them in and having success. So in 71, I think we traded rough grouse to Missouri for some turkeys and then did it a few more times. And uh, now we've got turkeys all over the state, which has been great. Our first season was in 1978. So we're coming up on 50 years, but this year, Vermont celebrated its 50th turkey season and they went through a similar situation. And in the late 60s, they started transplanting birds. And I found the story, I was putting the story up, uh, National Wildlife Turkey Federation emailed it out. I put it on the Outdoor Feed website so you can read all about this. You can watch this full video at theoutdoorfeed.org. But here's what it looked like in the late 60s when they were transplanting birds to Vermont. By the mid-1960s, it had become apparent to wildlife biologists that in order to successfully establish a wild turkey population, a different approach must be used. They were trying to use pen birds, oh. and it wasn't working. were developed to safely capture turkeys, which could then be transported to colonize unoccupied This filmed on a new cannon? Yeah. <laughs> 1969, Could you imagine Vermont trying to make a video with that equipment these days? Oof. New York Conservation Department Man. to trap 15 to 20 wild turkeys for release in the southwestern section of the state. Turkeys were leg banded to aid in future identification, and biologists recorded the animal's weight, sex, and age. They must have some sedatives on those turkeys. Yeah. They were once Follow again the science and readily <laughs> adapted to their that snowmobile. Home. The there you go. Technique still there it is. So, yeah, and they're still using some similar techniques if they're uh, tra- I don't think they're transplanting much for birds anymore. Don't but need to. They were, uh, yeah, uh, using that same technique for a number of years, probably exactly what they did in Minnesota, too. Only they only had to go to New York to transport those birds. So uh, check out more at theoutdoorfeed.org. All right. Joe Henry is coming up with some turkey trivia and Ali Shakur with some really interesting walleye research on the way. 
Devil's Lake is legendary, and this summer has been legendary for walleyes. Don't miss out. Call Haybell Heights Campground and Resort today to book one of their modern cabins on East Bay. The cabins are furnished with a full bathroom, kitchen, and all the amenities like high-speed internet and are clean following CDC guidelines. Staying at Haybell Heights gives you full access to a private boat launch, fish cleaning station, and beach area. Learn more at haybellheights.com. That's haybellheights.com. Plan your trip to legendary Devil's Lake today. 852 million acres of public land, 147 million private properties, all in the palm of your hand. The number one hunting GPS app just got better. With hundreds of custom map layers, 3D and topographic maps, you can easily scout on the road or at home before you go. And now you can get important weather details, CWD detection, and even know what crops have been planted where. Get the most trusted hunting GPS app ever made. Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx. All right, now it is time to talk to Joe Henry from Lake of the Woods Tourism. And Joe, it's your lucky day because today we're starting off the interview with some turkey trivia. I know you're pretty excited about it. It has so much to do with your Lake of the Woods fishing report. (laughs) We'll get to that in just one second, though. But Joe, how are you doing? I'm doing well, you guys. How are you? We got uh, Dan Amundsen and David Eckhart with us right now. And we are doing a little bit of turkey trivia here ladies and gentlemen to uh, to learn you a little bit more about what the turkeys are like here in the united uh, states of america question number one are you guys ready for turkey trivia question number one how many subspecies of wild turkeys are in north america is it a four is it b five is it c six <laughs> or is it eight is it d twelve a you're saying four yep i'd have i'd have to say c letter c six five we'll just throw it in the middle the answer (laughs) is five ladies and gentlemen five five of them which of the following are not a subspecies of turkey in in uh, the united states uh a the goulds b the merriams c the genios (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Jenny or D the Osceola the Genio <laughs> well, there could be some controversy on this because no David there's I mean, <laughs> Genio turkeys do exist in the United States they do exist so hang on big, big numbers big it's giant numbers. question yeah what's the answer host it's was well, Genio oh come on it's, <laughs> yeah uh, all right question three what is the smallest of the subspecies is it A, the Easterns? Is it B, the Rio Grande? Is it C, the Oscillated? Or is it D, the Osceola? D. D. Yeah, I'm going to go D. Sure. D. We'll uh, go with it. The answer is C, the Oscillated. But what's gotta, the size difference? I'm, I'm going to look it up right now. i got to look at... Uh, I pull this up for just a second and uh, double check it because there are five subspecies according to National Wildlife Turkey Federation: the Easterns, the Osceola, the Rio Grande, the Merriams, and then the Goulds. So the Oscillated. There's a trick I, I question. Didn't that, I didn't hear that as one of the five. I'm, I'm yeah. No. So the Oscillated is actually only in Mexico, uh, okay. the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, northern Belize, and uh, the El. Patine region of northern Guatemala. This oh. game's rigged. So technically, oh, yeah, that so was D, a, D was correct then. The Osceola. Yeah, I guess this game's rigged. <laughs> I threw a, I threw a you, know, you know what my logic was? Curveball in there. Down in, down in Florida, 
you know, the, the deer are smaller and you know what I mean? Everything's smaller. So yeah. I just figured it'll, it'll hold true for the turkeys as well. Yeah, you're, you're probably correct there. I'll uh, double check it here. It is uh, considered the toughest species to, to call in. They have very long spurs, strong gobbles, long legs. Uh, let's see. Does it say how they are? They're shorter beard lengths than Easterns. Adult females weigh 8 to 12 pounds. Adult males weigh approximately 20 pounds, which is pretty close to an Eastern. Uh, 18 to 30 pounds, I guess, for Easterns. Rio Grands are 20 pounds. Merriams are 18 to 30. So glad we did our good research yeah. before this show. <laughs> I wrote this question like a month ago and we'd never used this trivia. So then I kind of forgot about it and I pulled it out. Obviously, I didn't pay much, much uh, attention. So to you what had a whole writing. month to prep for this. Yeah, well, I prepped for like an hour. <laughs> you an hour? Because he couldn't figure it out. A month ago. That's and, like uh, more than I ever did when, homework when in college. Describing, when you're describing that turkey, I was kind of thinking that there's some tendencies to some of the good people that uh, Danny went to school with at Bemidji State. <laughs> <laughs> You're yeah. not wrong. <laughs> well, in any case, there That's is some information. I agree about the turkeys of the U.S. and the oscillated that is uh, south of the United States. Uh, there you go, turkey trivia. Uh, Joe, do you do much turkey hunting? No, but I think I've seen some of those oscillated turkeys running around up here in Minnesota. I don't know how they got over the border, but uh, I think I've seen them. <laughs> well, there's so many of them flooding well, in right now. Do you want right to touch now. that one, Brett, please? They're probably pretty much uh, a United States turkey now at this point. Would you uh, like to comment on that at all, Brett? No, I mean, we probably, right we'll leave that for a different show. Uh, <laughs> you know, it is. I do see some turkeys up in northern Minnesota. It's pretty amazing to see that yeah. the population kind of uh, grow in northern Minnesota. We actually, when Dan and I were going up to uh, driving through Canada last year, we saw one in Manitoba somewhere. I don't remember where we were, but we saw a turkey running around. So uh, they're definitely turkeys up north, but people go to Lake of the Woods to do some fishing. And uh, I saw some big sturgeon coming out of the rainy here this week, Joe. Well, there's been some big biggies caught this week. And you know what? Uh, sturgeon fishing was better this week. I, I don't know exactly what it was, if the water got a little clearer or what. But, you know, the water was, you know, those fish will bite in dirty water. And But it's just been so cold. Like, we haven't been warming up. And, you know, like we normally would gradually warm up. And so, um, but this last week was a much better week for sturgeon fishing. And things are really starting to, to turn on. And, you know, this is our last week, I think, of the spring for the keep season. And then, it's a uh, catch and release season again through uh, March, uh, sorry, May 15th. So, uh, so it, it's still game on for sturgeon fishing. And, you know, they're catching, they're catching a lot of fish in Four Mile Bay, which for those of you that don't know Lake of the Woods, that's at the very mouth of the Rainy River. Uh, there's a big boat ramp at Wheeler's Point, and it's really close to the boat access. But um, otherwise, they're catching fish up and down the river too. You know, there's 42 miles of navigable Rainy River, and there's different holes throughout the river. And I would just say that, some uh, sturgeon anglers are targeting the actual holes of the river for the sturgeon. And then some others are targeting the flats area that kind of are adjacent to the holes. And those fish are sliding up in those flats and feeding also. So a lot of sturgeon to be had. I heard a stat recently that I think it's uh, the DNR says that uh, there's there's a, a hundred over 100,000 sturgeon over 40 inches in the Rainy River. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of sturgeon. Now, when they say that there's a hundred thousand sturgeon over forty in the rainy, are they are they talking about fish that kind of primarily stay in the rainy, or are they you think bouncing out and in and out of the lake? Is this a, a lake of the woods population of sturgeon, or what? Well, do you I don't know for sure, um, honestly, but I, I think that the majority of the fish uh, um, stick to the rainy pretty good. There's always a strong, strong, strong population of fish in the rainy river, and certainly they catch you know sturgeon. Uh, 
um, out on Lake of the Woods as well in different parts of Lake of the Woods. And, you know, we've heard of just some absolute behemoth fish caught on the lake too. So I don't know how that works, if those fish are coming and going from the river or if they actually resort to actually living in the lake then. Um, that'd be an interesting question for the, the DNR biologists. I don't know that one. Well, it's a it's an amazing fishery, and it's great to see it come back and uh, have the success that it's had for sturgeon, David. Well, and that tag sturgeon from the tournament that was tagged in Four Mile Bay and didn't get caught for twenty years, and then got caught in the river. So it's amazing. I mean, it's a cool story when you when you get a tagged fish like that, and you can hear the the behind the scenes. You know, there's some sturgeon that are caught numerous times. There's others that have never been caught before, and some people think that they maybe just slid over and and maybe lived part of their life on the Canadian side where you, you can't fish them. Some people think some of them might have gone into the lake and they're just kind of spread out out there. And uh, and who knows why? I mean, that's, but it's a lot of river too, you know. And, and you know, people fish up to Birchdale. And then, of course, you can go past Birchdale. But now you got rapids and rock. And, and that's why most people don't venture past Birchdale. But who knows where those sturgeon go? Yeah. Well, Joe, I did some driving around a couple hours north of here uh, last week when I went up to that gun fair in Little Falls. And then we've talked to uh, some other people around the region and some lakes still have quite a bit of ice on them. I think it's I think it's going quickly. Uh, some of those places when I during my drive, every lake I drove by was wide open. What's uh, what's the latest on ice conditions up at Lake of the Woods? Yeah, it's uh, I tell you what, Mother Nature between the, the sun and the rain and the wind is taking a taking a beating on that ice. Ice is getting black. A lot of open spots are popping up, mainly up at the angle. The majority of Big Traverse Bay is still ice covered, but that ice is getting dark. And you know, we kind of go through this every year. And you know, I always get a kick out of it. Though people, oh, you're gonna have ice for the opener, and you know, 95% of the time we don't. You know, and and if we do, even if we do have some ice chunks floating around out there in Big Traverse Bay. Uh, man, I'll tell you what, right off the bat, the, the Rainy River is open right now into uh, into Lake of the Woods through the gap. And, man, I'll tell you what, there's going to be a lot of walleyes left over in that river. There's going to be a lot of walleyes left in Four Mile Bay. And, uh, and of course, once you can get on that lake, you know, a lot of those walleye, that walleye fishing we do is going to be pretty uh, pretty close to shore as a rule. It's going to be, uh, you know, jig fishing. So I'm, I'm, my dad has got a, an annual fishing trip that he takes with his buddies, and they've been doing it for, I don't know, 40 years, 30-some years. Uh, another big family tradition or a friend tradition fishing trip. And they're going to Lake of the Woods this year again. They went there last year, too. Actually, after we brought, I think, my dad up and we stayed at Arneson's, and they booked at Arneson's for the next year. And then they're going to Arneson's again this year. And they're going to fish out of a launch this year, one of their charter boats. And, and I'm kind of jealous. You know, I, I haven't been on one of those boats now. We've been bringing our own up there, which is always kind of fun. But it's nice to be able to jump in one of those boats and just sit back and let uh, one of the guides do all the work up there, Joe. Well, I'll tell you what. Well, here, here's the deal, too, is that there's a lot of people that maybe they're not real, real, real avid anglers. Maybe they don't have a boat. Maybe they do have a boat and just feel a little intimidating bringing their boat, you know, and putting it on the big waters of Lake of the Woods, you know, which I understand. But if that's the case, man, stepping aboard a charter boat is a nice way to go. You jump in the car. You don't have to bring a lot. You don't have to pull a boat. You know, you, you go up to a nice resort, normally get up there late afternoon, have a have a couple of, of your favorite beverages have a nice dinner with your group, you know, and and uh, just have a nice relaxing night. You get up the next morning, have breakfast. You board the charter boat at about a quarter to eight. At around eight o'clock, you'll see the pre-ended charter boats either going out of the Rainy River or maybe you're staying at a, a South Shore resort where uh, you just uh, shoot out of the harbor. And uh, whichever way you do it, man, I'll tell you, licensed charter captain's going to take you out. The rod's reel, tackle, bait, 
um, and the expertise is all included. They're going to put you on fish. They have, they're dialed in on the walleyes. If those walleyes have moved, if the wind has changed, something like that, you know, they're working with other captains that are, are in real time on the water. And, and these captains are working together to put you on fish. And I'll tell you what, uh, fishing on a charter boat is not only easy, I mean, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's simple, it's effective, and uh, and they even clean your fish for you when you come in at five o'clock in the afternoon. So it's a beautiful day. I know some sometimes uh, I know couples that go up there, a couple of buddies will go up together, and then they they'll combine groups on a charter boat, which takes up to six customers typically. Yeah, um, most of those boats are all pretty similar across the resorts, right? They can fit about six people in them. Well, they can fit more, but the kicker with six is that's what our Coast Guard license allows us to take out. It's called a an OUPV license, uh, an owner of uninspected passenger vessel uh, up to a certain amount. That's called a six pack license. And that's what the vast, vast majority of people have around here. So that's why it's a six person limit on those boats is because of our, of our Coast Guard license. And um, and that's plenty, you know, it, 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 it makes it fun. I, I kind of like jumping on with different people. I mean, I've made some really good friendships over the years, jumping on with, you know, I've met people from the Twin Cities and during a sports show, they picked me up after the sports show, brought me to uh, um, uh, just a really neat uh, pizza place in St. Paul. I'd never been to kind of a hole in the wall place. Actually, I'll tell you what it was called Mama's Pizza in St. Paul. And uh, um, so John and Sonia did that. But I, I, I met many, many good people on charter boats over the years. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It's also a lot of fun just learning, talking to people from different parts of the United States, finding out about their life helping them fish if they're not real avid anglers, seeing the excitement when they catch a nice walleye. I mean, it's good. It's fun stuff. And it's relaxing, Brett. I mean, man, you yeah. step on board, all of a sudden, you don't have to figure out where the fish are. You don't have to figure out the weather. You don't have to figure out navigation. You know, you, I mean, you just sit back and truly relax and enjoy the scenery and talk with your friends and, and family. And it's, well, it's very nice. And one of the, you know, at least some of those boats that I've been on, if, you know, if, if if we had people that e either were in the bar until pretty late the night before and needed a place to take a nap, which I've watched people do many, many times, they can sleep down below. And then uh, if we had women on board, there was usually a, you know, a, a little room that they could use a, a bathroom on some of those boats down yep. underneath them as well, too. So yeah, they're the little, yeah, exactly the little bathroom on board. It really makes it nice and convenient. And, and uh, it's just simple and it's comfortable. It's a big boat, you know, so it can handle the big waves. Uh, the captains do a nice job of taking care of customers and, uh, you know, everything's provided. I mean, you don't have to bring a rod or anything. You just step aboard. Really, we, we joke around about the charters. You know, you got to remember two things in a day. What should I wear and what should I eat? Other than that, go catch walleyes. Yeah, it's a nice way to go. And if people want to learn more about charter boat fishing, what should they do, Joe? Check out our website. Everything's on there. And that is Lake of the Woods, MN.com. Before we let you go, though, uh, I did want to mention... Uh, I know there's some changes going on with some of the resorts up there. I saw uh, Wheeler's Point is uh, renaming their bar and they're closing out all their Wheeler's Point merch. So if, uh, if anybody has stayed there or if anybody wanted a little piece of Lake of the Woods history, maybe Joe, they can get a, a, a Wheeler's Point hoodie or, or hat. They're doing them for like 50% off while they last. So, uh, Well, you know, Wheeler's Point has a, a very storied tradition for, for many, many people, many great, great resort owners have come through. They're wonderful, wonderful people and worked hard, built a great name up. And you know, it just so happens that um, this was this was part of Wheeler's Point Resort. It's one of the uh, one of the resorts in the sale. Um, and and when, when the resorts were purchased and uh, they're, they're given the they're going to rename it and they're going to rename it to, I think, Borderview North. Right. And then 
what they're going to do is they're going to rename their bar and they're actually having a contest online where if you go to the Wheeler's Point Resort Facebook page, you have an opportunity in the comment section to put down there what you think the name of the new bar should be. And if they pick your name, I think you get a hundred dollars in the a gift card or something from a board of you lodge. So kind of a neat deal. And, uh, um, but you know, again, that bar, if you've ever been to that bar, what a neat bar. I mean, you're overlooking the rainy river towards Canada. You're right on the point. It's got a really neat feel inside of it. It's got these fans that have a cable system that turn these fans real slow. You just have to see it, you know, and it's just a neat atmosphere. And, and again, it's, it's every, one of the cool things about Lake of the Woods, you guys, every resort's, a little bit different. It has its own yeah. menu. It has its own ambiance, its own culture. And certainly Wheeler's Point, but now Board of You North, is one of those resorts, just just like many others are. I mean, you know, they all have something to offer and, and certainly uh, this one does as well. Well, we're, we're excited to get up. I know, Dan, you're going to try to go up there next week, it sounds like. Uh, <clears throat> ooh, excuse me. Right after opener, I'm going to zip up there for a day. We're going to be doing a little walleye, Minnesota walleye opener tour and hitting a few different lakes, and you can't do that without going to Lake of the Woods. So we're going to sneak up there for a day and uh, see what we can't find. I'm jealous. Yeah, you should be. I'll be over at uh, Horicon <laughs> Marsh at the same time as you, not fishing. Maybe a little fishing over there. I'll be over there with Pat Calmerton, so we might we might try to fish a little bit. But uh, when my dad goes up in June, Joe, uh, Dan and I are going to come up and join him, too, and uh, fish with the we guys are. up there. Can't so, wait. Yeah. Pretty Hi, you're going to guide him, hey? Well, we, we're going to support him, we'll say. That a boy. So. Now, I wouldn't say that in front of your dad, I guess. I hope he's not listening. <laughs> no, I'm sure he loves having his son and grandson with anyway. It would just, uh, you guys are always a good time. Yeah, yeah. He was pretty excited about it when we told him. But all right, Joe, uh, Ali Shakur is actually going to be joining us. If you want to stick around, he's going to be joining us next on the show. Otherwise, Joe, Joe Henry, thanks for the time today on the show. All right. Say hi to Ali. He's an awesome dude. You're going to enjoy listening to him. Thank you. Northern Minnesota's Walleye Factory is a year-round world-class fishing destination. The perfect getaway this summer is just a short drive to Lake of the Woods. Fish Big Traverse Bay, the Rainy River, or visit the unique Northwest Angle. To catch big fish, you have to go where the big fish are. Plan your trip to Lake of the Woods at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. That's lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Live Target, the leader in Match the Hatch, is back with new lures that also match the action. Introducing the Live Craw. The Live Craw is irresistible to bass, walleye, and other freshwater species. FTEX winner, the ultimate frog, looks and acts just like a swimming frog. With an exposed ultra point mustad hook and replaceable legs, the ultimate frog has two styles, two sizes, and eight colors. And iCast and FTEX winner, the live shrimp mimics a fleeing shrimp for saltwater anglers. Coming soon from Live Target. This is Sporting Journal Radio. I'm Brett Amundsen. Thanks for tuning in on the network. By demand, sportingjournalradio.com or by watching this on YouTube. Dan Amundsen and David Eckhart are with us as well here. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Great. Uh, all righty. Yeah. Last year in Branson, when we were there in September, Dan, yep. we uh, we got to interview a bunch of people for the show and meet a bunch of people. We were there for the Aglow Conference and uh, we met somebody there that, that, that I mean, we had some good interviews. I don't want to knock the interviews that we did with anybody anybody else that were there, but nobody else gave us walleye research, which was some of the most interesting stuff that I think that we we got while we were down there. And that was with Ali Shakur, who joins us once again on the show. Ali, how you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Always appreciative of the uh, opportunity to come on and do a little talking about some fishing. So you you come from an interesting background because you're a biologist, yet you're also a tournament angler. So I, I probably could come up with questions for you every week because I feel like 
that's uh, I mean, I, I feel like you have it. You'd have an edge over some of the other anglers in the tournament because you can think like a fish a little bit and understand what they're doing down there. Has that, has that helped you out in the tournaments? You think? Um, no, man. These guys. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wish it would give me a leg up, but you know, the guys that I fish against on the, you know a couple different circuits. If you if you mess up, make the wrong decision, drop the wrong fish or something, you, you're in trouble. They're absolute hammers, but. You know, it's giving me some shortcuts, I think, when I'm pre-fishing and trying to figure out some things or going to a new body of water. I have one in place really high on a couple of terms, I think, based off of some knowledge that maybe I gleaned from some literature reviews or some of the stuff that I've seen raising walleye. So, um, you know, it kind of adds another dimension to, uh, to my preparation. Last time we talked, you were doing some research, I think, on algae blooms or blue-green mm-hmm. algae. Mm-hmm. Um is there been any more research come out about that or, or do we, do you know any more? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still, um, you know, kind of do, repeating, doing some replicates. So, you know, for, for those who didn't hear, I'm, so I'm taking walleye eggs that I'm getting from Beta Knock and exposing them to microcystis, which is one of the main mat forming uh, species of blue green algae in Lake Erie. Um, taking a look at things like um, egg survival, hatch success, um, lipid content of larval walleye is kind of a proxy for body condition daily growth rates. So I'm exposing them to environmentally relevant levels of microcystis, uh, and they are toxin producing, uh, and a couple of uh, other algae. And you know, we're seeing some, some effects um, on survival and hatch success. Um, so there's some interesting um, interactions going in, going on. Now, now, beyond that, I've actually started doing some other stuff on Erie in the same vein, which is uh, we're using uh, hydroacoustics. So I have this large, about a five or six foot airplane type vessel, and it has four large transducers on it, just like you're using to catch fish, uh, 400, 200, 110, and 70 kilohertz. And we're mapping subsurface concentrations of microcystis and also mapping uh, fish community distributions, both inside and outside of the bloom. Um, then we're also doing some stuff like uh, sampling zooplankton, prey fish, and then putting acoustic telemetry, that is the tracking data from, from fish, to get a snapshot of how fish are utilizing that bloom because of some of those toxins that are produced and because of some of the possible environmental impacts. So the research is kind of expanding a little bit, and I'm really excited in the direction that we're heading. So are you finding that, I mean, do these walleyes just kind of bounce in and out of it? Is it just from them going from point A to point B? Are they, are they following it? Is there something in them that they're feeding on or what's their relationship to these blooms? Well, you know, a lot of, so, so the bloom sets up basically in, in July or so in the far Western basin, Maumee Bay, basically. Um, and at that point, most of the majority of the larger trophy sized walleye have migrated towards the eastern basin. They're following some cooler water and doing what they do every year. But there are some some other species that still hang around. There's a lot of walleye still, just the, the majority of the larger fish are gone. So they will transit right through it. Um, there's some unpublished DNR, uh, DNR data from uh, out of Ohio showing that some of the larger walleye were actually using the edge of the bloom as cover, right? People think Uh-oh. that there's no cover on the Great Lakes and it's featureless. So. They were using the edges. That could be a, a thing where they're following bait fish that are using the edge. We're not really sure. Hopefully some of this data that I'm putting together will show that, but they but they will use the bloom for different uh, purposes at different times of the year. So is that is that, you know, is that water pretty clear? Would they use that also because it for walleyes being sensitive to light, it'd be a little bit darker there, or is it more cover for ambush locations? Uh, it, it'd be a little bit of both, I would, I would imagine. Um, 
you know, in, in low light situations because of the way walleye vision works, um, they have the upper hand on prey species. So with, you know, water that's super turbid or super, you know, there's high turbidity, it's really dirty. Um, they'll have that, but also it's going to give them some cover from sunlight. Um, but again, they could be drawn to that edge because the bait fish are using it or zooplankton are drawn to it and the bait fish are coming in to feed on zooplankton and then the walleye. So, you know, there's never a, you know, nothing happens in a vacuum where one species decides to do something. You have this, what they call a trophic cascade where, you know, everything that happens um, is influenced by something in the food web, either above or below, and sometimes both at the same time. So a lots of really interesting interactions that are going on out there. What was that picture that you just pulled up there, Dan? Can you explain what we're looking at in this? Uh, do you still have it or did you get rid of it? That, yeah, this picture. Yeah, so, so this is a picture. This isn't like actually what the house shows how extensive it can get. But what you're seeing here up on Lake St. Clair in the upper left-hand side, that's a lot of mud kind of coming down, chalky water. We probably had a big blow. Um, the Detroit River is pumping so that, that same water into the far western basin to the left on that picture. All of that green that you're seeing is a harmful algal bloom or an algal bloom. Wow. You know, mainly consisting of, of microcystis. So it's going to stretch from the far western basin, Monroe, Michigan, um, out past Cleveland. This looks like it's going all the way out to Geneva or Ashtabula near the Pennsylvania line. Um, so we're talking about hundreds of miles of lake wow. that is covered by that bloom. Um, it has impacts on drinking water. At one point, uh, south eastern lower Michigan, northwestern Ohio, uh, about half a million people lost, lost their drinking water for about a week um, due to this bloom. Um, it's affecting property values because it's washing up on shorelines and, and different things. And so, you know, then there's the ecological issue. So it's a really a, a multi-pronged problem that, you know, a lot of people are really starting to take a look at. But it, it's an extensive problem and it stretches for a good part of the lake. Um, there's also some things that come from that. So when that bloom sets up in the western basin, at this latitude, we have primarily westerly winds. Um, so it blows to the central basin and then it dies. And when it sinks to the bottom, it starts to decompose, right? And so decomposition can, consumes oxygen. So what happens is you have these areas that set up, they're called dead zones. So, so fish that may have lived on the bottom that are really sensitive to oxygen are, are starting to move and it kind of creates a squeeze. There's a loss of habitat. Some fish are, are not as sensitive like round gobies. They can survive in just about any conditions out there. Um, but it, it can cause issues. Um, yellow perch have been kind of on the ropes. Um, a lot of us, a lot of people are finding that yellow perch are actually starting to suspend where they may have been demersal in the past and living on the bottom. They're kind of feeding higher in the water column. So again, I talked about this trophic cascade and these different trophic interactions. It just doesn't happen with the actual organisms, but it happens with other factors such as uh, harmful algal blooms also. What's causing that uh, out there? What's causing that blue-green blue-green so, algae? It, uh, the, the, the research, the literature, um, Gary Fonestil has some really good work on this early on, talks about um, springtime rain uh, in the far western basin through the Maumee River watershed. The Maumee River has the largest um, sediment load of any Great Lakes tributary, and it comes to a lot of agricultural. Um, Eggs, okay. Area. Egg runoff and then. So, yeah, so you have a lot of uh, fertilizer, phosphorus, and nitrogen. Um, then you have some stuff later in the season or, or even early on where you have some municipal runoff 
A lot of areas have combined sewage uh, storm water overflow. So when heavy rainfall events, they'll start to release sewage, sometimes raw sewage into the Detroit Oof. River and Sandusky. And that is just fuel for the fire. Um, and that will fuel these blooms also. So there's a couple, again, again, there's a couple of different things that in, can impact um, the occurrence and severity of these harmful algal blooms. We deal with that a lot in Minnesota. Uh, I, I think a lot of our lakes have it. Um, I don't know. I don't know of any, I've never heard of anything that big uh, before that, that extensive of a bloom, but we obviously deal with it here and, and having dogs that like to swim when it gets real hot in the middle of summer like that, my dogs, I usually do everything I can to keep them out of there because it can be very toxic to dogs. So, uh, being in Minnesota with the amount of walleye anglers here, if your research ends up telling us that, uh, walleyes are suffering some sort of ailment from these toxic, uh, algal blooms, there's going to be something, something's going to get done about that around here. I think. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say that they're suffering any ailments because of but I don't, I don't want to, you know, throw out right, a, a right. false alarm at all. Um, just, it's just something that needs to be, um, you know, it's an unknown. Um, you know, we, we took taken a look at some fish to see if microcystis cystin, the toxin, is making it into the flesh. So, you know, a lot of times it's filtered out by the kidney or the liver. So, you know, we hadn't found anything where it's actually making it into the flesh. There was some studies on Grand Lake St. Mary's, which is just outside the Lake Erie watershed, where um, it was making it into the flesh of crappies. Now, that's not to say that that's happening in Minnesota for everybody to stop eating crappies. Um, um, but on that same lake, you mentioned dogs. Um, one of the years they had a really bad bloom. Some of the, there was some, some people who lost family pets who were allowed to swim in that water that was, um, you know, really thick with uh, cyanobacteria. So there are some, some concerns with pets, immunocompromised people, um, people with kidney issues. Um, it can be impactful. So these are just kind of things to, to think of and, and, and be mindful moving forward with this type of thing. Well, speaking of, uh, uh, the cyanobacteria, I, we actually have some research about that coming up on the new Prairie Sportsman episode that's airing this Sunday on Pioneer PBS, Sunday night at 730, or you can watch it on the Prairie Sportsman YouTube channel uh, starting at noon on Sunday. We also have uh, some national archery in the schools program news from a, one of the schools in Minnesota just has just been dominating at nationals. And uh, we'll tell you who that is and do a little bit, of, do a story on them. And uh, we've got some other, oh, uh, foraging for milkweed. Have you guys ever eaten milkweed before? Nope. No. Uh, Ali, have you have you ever foraged for milkweed before? <laughs> I have. I foraged for a lot of things, but never milkweed. Yeah, I didn't really. I mean, I guess I'd heard of it. Apparently, it's it can be toxic unless you prepare yeah. it the right way. So that immediately is going to make me go. Eh, I'll go for the yeah. asparagus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Nicole Zempel, who you've done spent some time with David, yep. uh, foraging for mushrooms, uh, she has got a fast forage segment on milkweed coming up on the new Prairie Sportsman uh, episode cool. on Sunday. It's the last one of the season, actually. So, all right, uh, Ali Shakur is our guest. We got to take a quick break, but we'll come back. Come back with more walleye research right here. Did you know there are more than 1,000 lakes in Ottertail County? Yep, and I'm gonna fish as many as I can. I'm an outdoorsy otter. Nothing beats a full day of fishing for me. The lakes of Ottertail County give me plenty of options to lower my boat and snag the perfect catch. Not an outdoorsy otter? No problem. Ottertail County has something for everyone. You just need to find your inner otter. To find your inner otter, go to ottertaillakescountry.com. 
We're back. This is Sporting Journal Radio. I'm Brett Amundsen. Thanks for tuning in. Wherever you're getting this uh, show, thank you. Maybe you're watching this on YouTube along with Dan Amundsen and David Eckhart. And our guest right now, Ali Shakur, uh, biologist and tournament angler. Uh, are you in Are you in Michigan, Ali, or where are you at? I am in Michigan. I'm just outside Detroit. I'm about 15 minutes from uh, Detroit River. The walleye runs going on. So a lot, lots of good fishing going on up here right now. Now, obviously, you have good fishing there, but you know about Minnesota. You probably know about some of our walleye lakes here. And I wanted to pick your brain about one thing in particular. And I we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the show. And uh, Red Lake this year is one of our big walleye lakes here in Minnesota. They're actually allowing you to keep more fish. They raise it to, what, five fish five. now? Yeah, five from four. And, and it's five with one over 20. There it is. Mm-hmm. You can read about it on sportingjournalradio.com. Last year it was four, this year it's five with one over 20. And they say it's because of the 2018, 2019 class is super Uh abundant, they said. And a lot of those fish are now 15 inches. They're gonna start spawning. And they say that too many spawning walleyes in the system is not necessarily a good thing on Red Lake. And immediately my brain is like, hmm, sure seems like it'd be a good problem to have. Once you start talking about uh, forage and you know the carrying capacity of the lake and things like that, you can you can have uh, it's what you probably what you were talking about in the last segment, the trophic cascade. Things get out of whack a little bit, and then you end up having issues. Walleyes don't get as big. There's not as uh-huh. much food. They start cannibalizing. So is that something? I mean, have you have you heard about the Red Lake deal, or is that something you've you've seen in other places? I have heard about Red Lake. Um, you know, we've seen it here. Um, on Saginaw Bay, we used to go up there and ice fish, and you'd have to go through literally a hundred fish to catch five or six keepers through the ice. So what Michigan DNR was, they dropped the limit from 15 inches to 13 inches, mm. and dropped the um, and raised the limit from five fish per angler to eight fish per angler, in hopes of taking some of those fish out of the system to release some of that pressure, allow those fish to get bigger and everything. So um, it worked a lot sooner than they think than they thought it would. I, I think it's something else. I think the fish just kind of showed back up, uh, but there are a lot, the fishing has really improved up there. So there, there is, um, I think it's a good, a good train of thought to think along those lines. Um, you know, what happens is, is classic density dependence, right? The more individuals you have of the same species in an enclosed area, there's gonna be more competition for mates, uh, for food resources. In the case of Red Lake, Upper Red Lake, um, with uh, all those spawners, there's going to be competition for even spawning habitat. Um, you know, and there's things in the literature that do show that um, if you have too many spawners in a system or in a confined area, that production will go down. Um, and again, that's that's classic density dependence that happens with people, right? Except we're able to fight wars over things that yeah. we may not be able to get to get locally, but you know, fish can't do that or, or deer can't do that, so. They respond. It's a it's a biological response. There's going to be more disease. There's going to be less production. There's going to be less survival of offspring. So I think that's a that's a, it's a viable um, strategy to to keep that population um, going. You know, there's also a thing with harvest. Um, there's numbers you want to hit. Um, you can take a lot of fish out of a system. Um, so you know, anytime you're talking about population growth and, and harvest, whether it's trees, whether it's fish, or something else. There's a thing called MSY, that's maximum sustainable yield. And when you, that's graphed out and you look at it, there's there's a point where you can harvest all the way down to that point in that um, 
population is still viable, and that's actually half the population size. And every DNR office that I've talked to or I've been to, and it's done intentionally, are always on the conservative side. They never come close to MSY, but that is to kind of keep the population where it's constantly growing. So again, it's a very viable strategy to help uh, with the, uh, the population on Upper Red Lake. Well, it's good to see that population growing, and there's there's one lake in your backyard that just boggles. Every time I think about how many walleyes and how many big walleyes are in it, uh, it just boggles my mind. And, and granted, it's a great lake, but uh, Erie is just an in, insane walleye fishery out there. I know some guys from here just went out and took another trip, and 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 the amount of big walleyes that you're that people keep out of that, like it it just. I, it's like a, a knife twisting every time you see a 10 pound walleye get filleted, you know, and it's like, what in the, what are you guys doing? Like, it's amazing yeah. that that lake can sustain that. Yeah, we, we get that a lot. Um, you know, I, personally, I don't, I don't mess with big fish anymore. I, I made a decision. It's not scientifically based or anything is that I try not to keep, especially on the river. I try not to keep anything over 22 inches because of the fishery here that can get incredibly tough. I have a charter captain buddy that I fish with and we'll be out all day trying to catch six mm-hmm. fish under 22 inches. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of fish, seven, eight, nine, ten pounds get eaten around here. Those are actually eaters at time, at certain times of the year, at certain certain years. So yeah, it's an incredible fishery. Um, a lot of a lot of fishermen from other places will kind of give fishermen from here grief when they see these posts on Facebook about yeah. all the big fish are being taken. And my suggestion is, come to Lake Erie and fish. Just come see for yourself, and you'll, you'll understand that. You know, I, I've had days literally where we'd have four men out, we'd have a four-man limit and small fish is seven pounds. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it it could be, I've had had multiple 12-pound, I had one day in March, uh, maybe five, six years back, I had a couple 13s in the same day and then a 12 and, you know, like a 60-pound bag of fish for my top five. And, you know, so the the, the big fish here at times are just, it's, it's absolutely insane. It's an interesting fishery, you know, and we obviously have Lake Superior here, which I, I fished a little bit, um, not not a lot, but Great Lakes fishing can can be a little bit different. There are some similarities, of course, but when you put, put that picture back up, Dan, or maybe that other picture that we saw from over there, <laughs> how, oh, yeah, how, yeah. Often, how often does it look like this when you're out there? This time of year, this the, the boat traffic, the fishermen, that's, that's pretty light right there. Wow. Um, it, it, it gets quite a bit more boat traffic than this um every weekend it's like this a nice day throughout the week i was just down collecting doing some sampling in the city of detroit on on the water today um at one of the parks and it's 30 knot winds and raining and there were boats out there fishing still so it's it's uh, pretty much an everyday occurrence almost and how often do the freighters come through yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's it's constant freighter traffic um I see chicken being played out there every fishing trip. Oh boy! Um, you know, which I don't get. There, there can be a fine. You know, if you can impede their progress, I think it's like six hundred bucks or maybe a little bit more now. But you know, funny story. I had a buddy who was down there fishing the river, jigging the Detroit River, and a big, you know, a big thousand footer probably freighter, seven hundred at least, was coming through, and he waited. He was on a good bite. He waited and he waited, and finally he decided to start up his main to get out of the way, and the main would not fire. And he oh, no. did not have a kicker, and his trolling motor was not strong enough to move him out of the way. So with the freighter bearing down on him, pushing that wall of water that I'd imagine looked like it was 20 feet tall, he and his fishing buddy actually had to dive out of the boat into the Detroit River what? Um, to avoid being run down by that freighter. I mean, you think of something that big, they're not stopping. It's no. impossible. 
So, uh, you know, luckily they made it out. There's a lot of there's a lot of current. There's a lot of undertows. It can be extremely dangerous. But yeah, um, you do. I see some pretty sketchy things out there with people trying to catch fish with those freighters coming in. But, you know, it, it can be uh, <laughs> it can be pretty interesting to see. Mike. So- so what's the difference? So we deal with a lot of barge traffic here and barges can move a lot of water and people always talk about watch out for the barge water. I've never fished the Great Lakes. What's the difference between like a barge wake and a freighter wake? Like yeah. a, a Great Lakes ship wake? Yeah, the barge. So, you know, I do Mississippi River and, mm-hmm. and Illinois River and those barges will move. Um, the wakes are a lot bigger coming off those yeah. freighters and they're a little bit sneakier. You, you can see you can see them coming off of a barge. If you're running opposite direction of a freighter is coming toward upriver and you're going downriver. Surprisingly, it's hard to see him. I remember being in the boat with Max Wilson. Um, he had just gotten his boat, had a 400 horse Verado and we were running down river and we didn't see the wave and we went airborne and I don't mean barely. I mean, we were, <laughs> we caught serious. I mean, Tony Hawk would have been proud of that. Um, <laughs> my back still hurt, but I'm still two inches shorter after that landing. Um, but yeah, those waves can be a little, a little bit more treacherous than just the barge traffic, sure. especially when you have two freighters going in opposite direction. There's oh, a spot gosh. that I love to jig musky, a jig musky down there. And the Coast Guard will actually come up when two freighters are going opposite direction because it's a narrow part of the river and when that happens it's just it turns into a giant washing machine oof dang what are you what are you jigging for muskies with over there um so i'm I'm using uh bondi baits um john bondi out of uh ontario makes them um there's seven ounces of a a big kind of flutter bait with a number six um blade on the back popular um, for lake trout bait yeah but very similar um some of the big 10 inch Titan tubes I'll use fuzzy does it, some other stuff, but there's a fantastic, uh, vertical jigging bite. You know, I get multiple fish up over 50 inches out there every year. Um, vertical jigging, jigging for them. Oh yeah. Wow. So it's again, you know, we talk about it being, uh, the walleye capital world, but Lake St. Clair and Detroit. Oh, don't say that around Joe Henry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're going to arm wrestle over that one. Um, you know, the, the small mouth fishing it's, it's really, you know, if you're thinking about coming to Detroit just or, or Detroit River, Lake St. Clair, Lake Erie, you don't have to just be caught up on the walleye fishing. It's a fantastic multi. Um, there you go, giant smallmouth. I got on, on uh, Lake Erie about a week and a half ago. We caught multiples over six pounds. Um, the the pan fishing is incredible. We get bluegill over a pound on Lake St. Clair, big perch. It's, it's just it's it's heaven it's like a sportsman's dream and i know minnesota is as well i'm a big fan of minnesota i love it up there it's god's country um you, you know but that's the thing about it people always ask me which place is better and it's a hard comparison because they're all just so fantastic and they're so beautiful to go to it's just what do you like um they're yeah. all they're all just just the best to me i love them all our guest is Ali Shakur. Uh, for our radio listeners, we got to let you go. Thank you for tuning in. But for the podcast listeners, we have more with Ali right now. So when we were talking about Red Lake a couple of weeks ago, uh, Upper Red and the, the changes that are going on there, I was doing some research and I learned a little bit about what was going on over in uh, Lake Huron and also on Erie about the, the, the spawn, where these walleyes go to spawn and where they travel. And I think it was on Huron, they, those walleyes will travel f- uh, a 500-mile round trip. Uh, from where they spawn to where they feed, it's 250 miles north and back. Is that right? Yes. It's not just Lake Huron. It happens everywhere. Um, I'm on the Detroit River I mentioned earlier. And the fish here, and, and this is the interesting thing. I'm, I'm going to get kind of off track just for a second. I want to talk about 
how you can affect a fishery and not really be aware that you're affecting it. So here on the Detroit River, we have Lake Erie fish that come here to spawn. We have Lake St. Clair fish that come here to spawn. We have fish from Saginaw Bay. We probably have fish from Sault Ste. Marie or from Georgian Bay or North Channel. Wow. So these fish make these longs. And the same thing, Saginaw Bay is going to have Lake Erie fish and Sault Ste. Marie fish. So, so there's this, I call it a mishmash of fish that are, that may live in one place and spawn in another. So you could, you know, Erie's different because you're not really, recreational fishing is not really gonna hurt the population that much, but other places it could. You could go somewhere and catch a bunch of fish and those fish not be resident to the body of water that you caught them on. They could have, you know, made a long migration from somewhere else. Um, and that's something that's gonna be elucidated or come to light a little bit more with all the acoustic telemetry data that's going on. But yeah, these fish, um, I have some of the data, you know, messed around a little bit. Um, you know, there, there's some um, walleye. There was one walleye that I saw in that animation for that spawned in the Detroit River. And seven days later was in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is a couple hundred miles away. Jeez, wow. Um, <laughs> so they do make these long range spawning, spawning uh, runs to get to their spawning grounds and back to their summer haunts and everything. So, yep, they do make them, they make them, it's pretty incredible. Um, and it, it's kind of interesting to see. And, and, and if I can, I'll, I'll keep going. Yeah, go um, for it. Those types of spawning movements are applicable to you even if you don't live on the Great Lakes, right? Um, I say it all the time when I do a seminar, a walleye is a walleye is a walleye whether it's on Lake Erie or it's on, in a farm pond in Iowa or it's in a Canadian Shield Lake or it's in Lake Columbia. They all do the same thing. The only thing that really changes is sometime timing, um, but magnitude changes. So, you know, one of the times that walleye are really vulnerable to being caught is during the spawn, right? They're going to go sometimes on predictable routes to get to their spawning grounds. They're all going to congregate on a reef or on a shoreline or on a river and then they're gonna leave on very similar routes that they came in. So you can kind of figure this out over time and, and, and kind of head them off at the pass, right? Um, they may make a, a 200 mile spawning run here or 300 mile spawning run on your lake back home. It may be two miles. It may be 100 yards, um, but the movements are still there. And another thing I say all the time is that the only thing that changes is scale and magnitude. So I'll go and I'll give an, it, 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 you know, I'll talk about Erie or I'll talk about another body of water and God will say, well, that's different. And I'll say, it's, it's exactly the same. You're just, you're not thinking about it the right way. It's the exact same movement. It's the exact same interactions, food web interactions. The only thing that changes is scale and magnitude. So when you see those and you read those studies, it is immediately applicable to wherever it is that you fish. If the species are the same and, you know, water temperatures could vary a little bit, but you know, another thing, not to always say what I like to say, but principles over particulars, right? You can talk about what baits to pull and how, whatever, whatever the case may be, you need to get to the root of why the fish do what they do. And that's something that I've really tried to do with the science background. You know, why was that walleye right there, right then? You know, then it becomes repeatable, not just to that body of water, but it becomes repeatable and applicable to other bodies of water as well. 
So one one difference that I that I will ask, and this is not, you know from an English perspective, yeah, that that walleye is reacting the same whether it's in Erie or you know Red Lake or whatever. But it, if you're in a small body of water, you can manage that fish a lot easier in that water. But when you're talking about the, the Great Lake system and a Detroit River, which is uh, connected to so many other bodies of water, how do you manage? for that walleye population when you've got so many coming from so many different areas congregating and then going back out. How, how is that done over there? Um, you know, lots and lots of math. <laughs> <laughs> Basically it's very, very quantitative. Um, you know, but they, you know, these guys have a great understanding of population dynamics and fishery science and what goes into this. They use some pretty powerful statistical methods to help figure this stuff out. But then we also have these long-term data sets, right? I have, I don't know, 30 years worth of trawl data on my laptop that I'm, that I'm on right now where I can go in and look at all the prey fish species and, and, and walleye hatches and everything. And so you can, over time, get a real good handle on what these numbers mean and what it means for population growth or population decline. You're never going to know exactly. And that's, and that's why earlier I spoke on um, yield, maximum sustainable yield and, and harvest levels and everything. That's why DNRs and people who set these types of limits are extremely conservative when they set those limits because you don't want to take it to the end, to the edge of the envelope, right? Because if you're wrong, now you're you're in deep trouble with the population and, and the fishery and at that point with the public. So they're extremely conservative with those numbers so they never get close to being on, on the edge. And that allows for the population to continue to grow and, and provide a, a fantastic resource for the people who want to get out and fish. So here in Minnesota, we deal with bodies of water that are borders uh, that are, have shared borders. So, you know, we'll deal with Wisconsin on the Mississippi, you'll deal with South Dakota on, on um, mm-hmm. you know, Big Stone and some other bodies of water. And then, of course, have to deal with Canada with the Rainy River and Lake of the Woods uh, where you're at. I mean, you're talking about multiple states and and probably and multiple Canada. or probably at least what just Ontario up there, I suppose. Yeah, so Lake, Lake, Lake Erie is going to be Ontario, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York. Jeez. Um, how how you know, well do they play together? Extremely, hmm. extremely well. So there's a Lake Erie task force where there's a representative from each state, their DNRs, and this is where they get together. They take a look at the trawl data that's been collected. They make the decisions. They set what's called a TAC, T-A-C, total allowable catch. So Michigan gets a percentage of the catch. Ohio makes up the most of the shoreline, so they get a larger percentage of the catch, and then so on and so forth down the line. And they've worked out a formula where whatever that TAC is, um, and, that, and that information is freely available to the public. It's nothing that's, that's, that's held close to the vest. You can Google it. I think it's up on the screen now. You can, you can take a look at it. So, you know, they have a, a formula that says if the total allowable catch is this, then the daily limit is six fish per person. If it's this, then it's eight fish per person. So it's, it's pretty set in stone. They, they've had a great handle on the, on the population, what they do here. They do a fantastic job. And they play... Uh, man, it, it's tough to think of anywhere else where the interaction between the different states and provinces is, is as good as it is in this area. I could just be biased because I'm around it all the time, and I know some of the people who sit on those committees, but they do a, a great job of working together to manage the resource. How much do you follow, then, what goes on over here, and is there anything you've seen that's been done here and not there or vice versa that you think could have been done or maybe could work in one of the other places? Um, I, I follow 
as much as I can. You know, even though I'm pretty busy, I just, you know, I love fishing. I love fisheries. I love the science. Um, and, I, and I love to see what's going on in other places and what works and may may not work. Um, I, I'm not going to say that I've seen things that may not work because, again, I'm looking from afar. Here I have numbers I can look at, and I don't have that in other places, and I'm, I'm never going to undercut someone sure. who yeah. has dedicated their life to managing or to resource because it's, it's not an easy job to do. Um, because you got to deal with the science side, and then there's the public, the public relations side that goes into that, which but may I'm be harder. Really, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> especially exactly. here. You know, I, I, in my research, I, I try to stay away from people. I'd rather work, walk into a room full of fish. And, yeah, <laughs> 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 it's too, too many dynamics dealing with people. Fish. If I feed them and give them the right water temperature, I have a party in the room every day. Um, <laughs> but you know, uh, I'm intrigued by the use of by the use of slot limits in other places. Yeah, um, there are no slots anywhere around here in the state of Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. I'm pretty sure when it comes to walleye, um, and it's very popular in Minnesota, the Dakotas. You know, you see, you know, one over 28, or you know, you got to throw back fish between 20 and 28. And there's always been some. There's been some discussions between people that, eh, it may not work. Maybe it's a it's a it's a person people thing a sociological type thing and they want to see something being done um because you, you you start to get into the biology they say we're we're we're, we're targeting or we're, we're trying to protect the spawners and that can be debate, debatable depending on the body of water but i'm always intrigued by the use of slot limits in other places and the fact that it, it has not been used here even when the population was low in, in the late 90s there was a time on in the, the Michigan Waters Lake Erie where they actually shut down walleye fishing. You had to run oh, over wow. the border to Ohio to keep walleye early in the year. That was, you know, 98, 99 or so. So there are there's been times where the walleye population has been low and maybe a slot if they are as advertised may have worked, but it was never used here. So, again, that's not to say that people are wrong for using them. Just always interested in the in the dichotomy between the two. There, there's one on Lake of the Woods, and I've been saying for a few years that I, I think that's what's given Lake of the Woods such uh, uh, an abundance of trophy fish. I mean, e- either they were already there and people just weren't catching them, but when you talk to the resort owners, and there's a lot of them up at Lake of the Woods, back in the 80s, if somebody caught a six or seven pound walleye, they were bringing it back to the dock. They were, you know, they were slapping it up. They were taking pictures of it, high fiving. It was a, it was a huge deal. And, you know, a lot of times now when these guides, these, you know, charter boats are out with six guys on them, half the time they're not even taking pictures of six pounders anymore because they're catching so many of them. So that slot is uh, 19 and a half to, to 28. Yeah, I think so. And I, I was actually just going to mention, I watched the Prairie Sportsman episode when we were fishing at Arneson's. We referenced it uh, earlier in the show, I think. Um, and you brought up the stat. I can't remember it exactly because you and I aren't the greatest at remembering stats like that. But before that, <laughs> right. before that slot limit was in place, I think the average size of a walleye on Lake of the Woods oh, yeah. was like 18, 19 inches. Like and now 19, it was think, yeah. up into the 20s, you know, 24, oh. 26 or something. Maybe not average, but it was something like that. Like the, the size of the walleyes increased drastically once that slot was put in place. And, and yeah, now we talk to guys at Lake of the Woods. They're like, ah, it was an okay day of fishing. We only got like two 28s and a 27 and a half. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, oh yeah, bad, terrible day of fishing. You know, so it's, it's yeah. definitely from our perspective has been a, a benefit. And, and it's, it's interesting. I didn't know that there have been no 
know that that's kind of a unique thing to maybe our area. I didn't I didn't know that. So that's that's interesting yeah, to know about. Not really unique to the area. So again, I think it's just a tool that really hasn't sure. been used here. But again, we're talking about Great Lakes fisheries right. versus even though those lakes are extremely large, they don't they they don't cover the area that Lake Erie and some of the other lakes. You know, the Great Lakes the Great Lakes cover. Um, also, you're talking about up that way. Those are colder, more oligotrophic or oxy or uh, nutrient poor lakes. Whereas the Lake Lake Erie, Lake St. Clair, Saginaw Bay are pretty nutrient rich. Um, so, so they're growing faster. Yeah, that you know it's it's <laughs> in Lake Erie, it's two years to fifteen inches. Jeez. <laughs> wow, um, so you know, I had I had fish that I had in the that I had in the tanks that I was doing some stuff with. They were um, hatched in the spring, and by September, October, they're six to nine inches already. Wow, six to ten, somewhere up to ten inches already. In the, you know, in the first six six, eight months, six, seven months. So yeah, they're extremely fast growth rates, but you know, with, with those, it, it does stuff. It, it, it shifts, you know, age at maturity. Um, it shifts when they spawn, when those, when those things happen. Um, and you know, and they are protecting a, a good swath of, of spawning, which kind of goes into something else with, with keeping big fish. We talked about the big fish that are being keep, kept here and we'll throw this out there also talking about that. Um, Again, people get, get grief for keeping those big fish. They say, oh, let them go, let them grow. They'll, they'll pass on their genetics. First of all, walleye fishing isn't QDM, right? Um, it's not, <laughs> like, you know, oh, man, we're going to take that one out of the herd because his right side is messy. His G2 is all out of that. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> that way. You know, there's some studies that show that larger fish will have larger eggs or eggs with more lipid or fats, and it, it, it can improve survival, but there's not really a big fish gene. Hmm. Um, so, you know, when you, when you keep those larger fish, that fish is 12, 15 years old. She's got a couple of years left to contribute to the gene pool. That 18 inch fish that's three years old, she's got 12, 15 more years to spawn. So which is the better fish to keep? The 30 incher who's big, who you want to pass on those genes or the three year old that's got 12 to 15 more years of spawning. Yeah. to contribute to the, to the system, you know, and that goes ties into those slots and the fit decisions to keep fish. I'm not going to say which one is best for you because you pay for your license. And if the system can support it, by all means, do what the, the license right. allows you to do. Um, but and my, um, my philosophy on that has been, um, usually a 19 and a half or 20 inch fish, you know, yeah. I'm not going to, I haven't kept anything over 20 for a long time. Uh, but even, even that 30 incher, you know, if I, you know, I've only, I think I've only caught one actually over 30, but, uh, oh, you got an, what's yes, that? we do. <laughs> yes, we do. Let's I've, book it right now. I've, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I've caught a, I've caught a number in the upper 20. So, and, and even though they may be near the end, I still have a hard time keeping them because a, you know, catch and release. I'm a firm believer in catch and release. I've seen a lot of fish yep. get caught again and somebody oh, else, somebody else that maybe hasn't caught a 30 might have the chance to catch that again that year or maybe the next year before that fish you know dies of uh, natural causes so that's that's where i'm at on it but yeah. um i'm the same way i let a lot of big fish go unless they're hooked really bad i know they're not going to yeah. make it which, which i hate to see but but here and, and i'll give you an example so there's a tournament we used to love to fish pond grass in ohio and it is a length tournament um I never got it. I never won it, but I took second a couple times, um, and it it took 150 inches to win for five fish. Um, 
but you'd see at that tournament, you know, if it was 80 boats, you'd easily see, I don't know, a couple hundred fish over 30 inches. Jeez. Um, so you're yeah, saying I, it, you had to catch five 30 inch fish to win. To win. Wow. So the last one I fished before they stopped having it, I had 151 inches for five fish and I was second. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. We, 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 they, it wasn't a weight tournament, but the, the, the director was curious because I had some tanks and he, he weighed and my, my top five fish were 52 pounds, seven ounces. Um, so, yeah, that's, so that's just kind of the class of what you're dealing with. You know, I've had tournaments over here, Detroit River Tournament, Masters of Walleye Circuit. Uh, we weighed 47, 48 pounds on day one. We're in ninth place. You know, just... <laughs> So that brings up another question I wanted to ask you as a biologist that's also a tournament angler. How do you feel about weigh-ins? How do you feel about putting a 10-pound walleye, you know, especially if there's no slot limit, uh, putting a 10-pound walleye in your live well, maybe for a couple of hours, bringing it in to weigh it in, uh, what what effect is it going to have on that fish? And and would, you know, to, you know, to add on to that, would anglers be interested in some sort of catch and release type tournament uh versus doing you know is do people just like their picture up on stage too much would they not go for something like that or what do you think the future is of tournament angling it's interesting you know i know i know cpr with the with the aim tournaments are, are really big out there in minnesota green bay north and south dakota you know they, they tried to bring it to michigan i actually won one of the first aims here and it just didn't get the participation i think guys like to walk across stage with five big fish um, but, but I do think there's something to it. Um, and I'm, I'm really not a big fan of taking a live well full of fish for a long ride, um, yeah. in, in rough water. I mean, the litter is, it, it's out there earlier in the year when the water's really cool, you know, like it is now it's in the forties or fifties, those fish have a higher survival rate. But if you're talking about in the summertime, June, July, the water's 70 degrees, Sometimes touching 80 degrees, you're catching these big fish. You're going to run 40 miles across Lake Erie and four footers and beat the heck out of them and let them go and think, yeah, they may look good swimming off. There is a really, 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 really good chance that none of those fish are going to survive or very few of them are going to survive for, for a long period of time. Um, and that's well documented in the literature about, about this stuff. So I'm, I'm not a huge fan. Um, I really do think that CPR format tournaments are, are, are the future, especially yeah. – for those who are concerned about the resource because it's i don't want to say it's unnecessary but it, it, it's a lot of stress you know green bay is one I, I love green bay i love to go there and fish um and there was a problem with mortality at way in one year at one of the tournaments just because of water in a bump tanks was too warm and we stood around with fish and they, and they just didn't make it now you know certain places ohio is a mandatory kill state even bass tournaments if you come in five fish those fish you have to get they're, they're going to die. Um, you know, they, they go to, they fillet them up and take them to food banks. So there's, there's no waste. Um, but not everyone has a resource where they can just make it mandatory that every fish has to be filleted and, and, and given to, you know, food banks. Um, what do you, I mean, I saw the MWC got moved out of Red Wing this weekend because of the flooding down there flooding. and got moved over to the Pete and well flowage. Uh, oh, yeah stretch of the wisconsin river there's a slot limit there uh slot in a one over how does mm -hmm. that 
I mean, when you fish in a tournament that's got a slot limit on it, how, that's got a weigh in, how do you, how does that affect you as an angler? And do you think there could be a time where if there's going to be a lot of lakes with slots on it, that you would just go to a CPR style tournament and then you could, you could actually register all those fish in the slot. I would love to see CPR try. <laughs> yeah. I avoid slot, slot tournaments like the play. <laughs> <laughs> they are tough. You got to make tough decisions. You know, people don't get it. Like you'll see a, a great angler come in with two or three fish because he played the game of waiting for that big fish to come and it never came. And he could have came in with five, 16 inches and been in decent shape. Um, so I absolutely hate them. It, it adds another dimension, uh, you know, to the thought processes that are already, already pretty tough. But, and I, and I have been saying it myself that in those slot type tournaments and in summertime tournaments, I think that going to a CPR format um, would be very good for the resource. Um, it, I think it's something that a lot of circuits probably need to take a good hard, a, a good hard look at um, for that. Uh, you know, be, it, it, another thing it'll do with those CPR formats is it's going to showcase the fishery, right? If I'm fishing a slot tournament, I come in with two fish that are 15 inches. It, it looks like there's nothing going on there. Yeah. But if I come in on my card and I have, you know, 10 fish between 22 and 26 inches, if there's a slot in that range that fishery is starting to look pretty good. People are seeing those pictures thinking, oh man, there's really some good fish in there. So sure, some people may not want to see people drawn to a fishery like that, but it's still a highlight for, for that fishery and, and, and for tourism in, the, in that area. So I think there's a lot of benefits to uh, CPR formats. And when I did fish the, the AIM, I really enjoyed the format. I, I really had a great time and I, and I wish it would come back this, this way. How did they handle the CPR so that there was you know, no way to cheat basically for these people? Um, a lot of photos are taken, you know, so we had to take the photograph. We all got the same bump board. You had to take a photo with the fish on the bump board. Um, everything was time stamped and then you had to take a, a photo holding the fish up and you always use the same side. So that if there were any distinguishing mark on the fish, hmm. they'd be able to determine it was the same fish in, in, in every picture. So they were very thorough when it came to safeguards against, against cheating in, in, in the aim, unless someone really wanted to go off the rails, but I'm not going to speculate on that. I'm kind of going to, you know, leave it with most of the guys I fish with are pretty honorable guys. And I never, that, that thought never crossed my mind, but yeah, good, good, good format. Um, some good safeguards. And I'm a big fan of it. Well, you know, nobody ever cheats in fishing tournaments. So. <laughs> Especially at yeah. Lake Erie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that, and I that, think, that. and I mean, weigh-ins are great, but man, length tournaments, I think there's just less room for error there. You're also talking about, you know, a fish could change its weight depending on what it's eaten, you know, day to day. So a, a length can determine a, a bigger fish, so to speak. And, you know, we've been doing this fish donkey style. We've been using yep. the fish donkey amp the last couple of years for our tournament. And it just seems like it's it's pretty much foolproof, you know, with some, yeah. of, the, some of the safeguards they take. So. Yeah, and, 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 I'm, I, and I really like it. The only thing I like to see change is some of the length to weight regressions they use. They're not, you know... They're not really accurate, but that's that's kind of the biologist part of me coming out. Like, there's no oh, way yeah. that was a 54 pound bag, you know. But but still, fantastic format. I'd love to fish AIM again, and and you know, just just great for the sport. I think. Well, what's next for you? What do you got coming up? Um. Well, I a uh, couple turn. We're out of Cleveland for the Masters Walleye Circuit in June. I'll be on Green Bay in July. Then I'm gonna go back up to Lake Hawaii. We're gonna go do some filming up there. Um. Even though I have Lake Erie here and the Erie Huron Corridor and the, the great walleye fishing. I've really fallen in love with the um, Missouri River, um, Sakakawea, oh, Oahe, yeah. 
Francis case. I really, geez, I think it's a really diverse fishery. I really, I really like it. So me and some buds are going to go up there and, you know, make a long weekend out of it, go do some casts and jig the trees, do some stuff. And, you know, I'm going to do a lot of fun fishing this summer, more than I've done in the past couple of years. I'm, you know, I need to slow it down a little bit and kind of slow down and uh, smell the roses when it comes to my fishing. What are you going to be filming for? Just for fun. We're just going to oh, go okay. up there and just, uh, you know, shoot some content, you know, maybe some stuff for some for some uh, sponsors. Um, oh, gotcha. You know, recently pick, picked up by St. Croix, so I'll get some content oh, to them. Nice. Um, with, their, with their odds. And, um, but, yeah, just more just documenting. I wish I'd – I've always been in such a hurry that I have not documented much, you know. Um, so I just want to do some more documentation and more pictures and kind of showing just the fun side of things. I'll tell you what we've, we now, because of our jobs here, uh, Dan and I, we bring cameras with and film pretty much if we're out hunting and fishing, we're filming it. Uh, sometimes we use it sometimes, most of the time we use it for something. Uh, sometimes if it's really a bad day out there, you might not see anything from it, but yeah. usually we'll get some social content out of it. But I think one of the one of the best parts about it is, yeah, we get to tell stories and show people some cool things, but we get to, we get all those pictures for ourselves now all of a yep. sudden, you know, so we can look back and be like, oh yeah, I remember that day out there. And, you know, he, yeah, he, yeah and, I, and I, and I got to tell you, that's, you're, you're probably a big part of the reason I started doing it. So, you know, after we met last year, I started following you all and started looking at the footage and I even showed it to my tournament partner, like, man, that's, that's the goal. That's where it's at. Look at this. This is beautiful. I, you know, I was in Niagara for the Niagara show right after you guys were there. Oh, really? And Yeah. And I watched the, the, the footage you had on the, on the river down there. It was gorgeous, you know, and I immediately start looking for AV equipment and start, you know, kind of <laughs> thinking, Hey man, like, like I, I want to get there. It's not so much for, for followers or whatever, but again, just I'll, I'll have it. I can look back on it and, and just really, I mean, we're blessed to do some things that a lot of people don't get a chance to do and to just kind of let it go by and not really take it all in and enjoy it, I think would be a travesty. So just, just start to document that stuff, man. And, and, and again, you all kind of set a high bar for me to kind of, <laughs> to, to get there. So, so I just wanted to, to let you all know that I'm really a big fan of the stuff you put out. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, that Niagara river, I had no idea what to expect. I'd never been out there before. Uh, and it, it was amazing. It was crazy. And some of the fishing that we'd, I mean, being able to fish in that river, uh, for lake trout and steelhead. And in some cases we were in six feet of rushing water, you know, uh, yeah. and catch some of the hardest fighting fish that you can. And it might be 10, 15, 20 pounds, you know, hooking into one of those in six, eight feet of water. That's a pretty fun fight. Yeah. Yeah. They were, they were the fun videos of watching it. And, and again, it just, just awesome. I, I watched them and I, I, it felt like I was there, you know, and that's kind of, that's the beauty of it, right? If you, if you really love this stuff, I talked about going to Hawaii and going these other places, you know, I want to see it all. And if I can't experience it in person to see those kind of videos that are just so vivid and colorful and show, you know, the atmosphere and, you know, what's going on around the water and the, and the entire, everything that goes into a trip, it, it, it takes me there. Right. And, and I, I just, I, I love it. I have a passion for it. And, um, it's just, it does something to me to see that, that kind of stuff. So I, you know, if I can do that for someone else or, you know, my children at some point or something, um, I'd, I'd be very extremely happy with that. Ah, well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. And just so you know, once you start going down that rabbit hole of, of camera gear and, <laughs> and stuff like that, it doesn't end. You always want to get the next, the next best thing. And, uh, yeah, my wife's like, uh, 
I wish you stopped looking at this stuff. Just buy some stuff. <laughs> I'm just, you're, getting, you're getting on my nerves. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what. It sounds like you're going to be uh, hopefully in Bemidji with us at the annual uh, GLOW conference this year in September. Uh, Dan and I have already been making plans about doing some fishing up there, and, and we'll be filming, of course, too. So we should we should plan on getting you in the boat and sharing a boat yes, and no, uh, doing some fishing and filming this year. Yes, sir. I'd love to. I, I'd, really, I'd really appreciate the opportunity. It'll be a lot of fun. All right, uh, Ali Shakur, uh, great stuff again. Uh, let's do this again uh, in the future, and uh, we'll see you uh, this fall for sure. And thanks for the time today on the show. Sporting Journal Radio is a division of Macaba LLC. If you've got a question, comment, or story idea for us, send us an email. Go to sportingjournalradio.com. While you're there, you can learn how to advertise on the show and visit our store for hats, hoodies, coffee mugs, and more. Go to sportingjournalradio.com.